What we do here is go back, 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 back. Welcome, welcome to The Hustle Sold Separately. We are a weekly podcast dedicated to doers, creators, artists, entrepreneurs, CEOs, innovators, uh, people in and around the world that are carving out their own path. They're doing anything but the status quo way. Uh, sometimes you guys are, not sometimes, often you guys are misunderstood. Uh, and uh, you're just, you're truly out for, um, you know, pushing norms, pushing boundaries, pushing your own boundaries. And our guests are no different. They have constantly tried to defy odds. They have worked on themselves and things that have really meant something to them. And I'm really grateful that every week we have these amazing guests that come on the show to talk about, you know, what are they experiencing in real time? What are some of the, the greatest, most valuable lessons that they have either endured or are continuing to uh, spread light on? And, uh, you know, and it also humanizes that entrepreneurial and creative journey. Uh, as you guys know, I'm not one for the whole glamorization and glorification of of the end success that media sometimes does. If some of you have been following me lately and commenting <laughs> on my Instagram, I've been going on on small tears about that um, and that the importance of just really embodying your own truth. Uh, for any of our new listeners, I'm Matt Gottesman. And for any of our uh, continuous listeners, I appreciate each and every one of you guys for for being on this journey. Uh, if you guys want to get in touch with me at Matt Gossman on Instagram at HDF magazine, where a lot of the conversation around creativity and art and culture uh, is taking place and mindset, of course. And you guys know I answer each and every single DM in text. And I have so for the last six years because you guys are awesome. And that's what it's all about is this worldwide community. And I appreciate all the ratings and reviews you guys have been dropping. We have another amazing guest on today. And uh, this this human being is incredible. I was going through quite a bit of his background. And, and I'm, I'm grateful to have him on the show. Uh, Neil Pesricha. And he's a best-selling author of uh, seven books and an international speaker. Before we get to that, though, we're going to actually be talking something along the lines of, of his books, but this idea of actually being awesome and embracing your own awesomeness that you already are and living a very intentional life. And we're going to be very specific on a few of these topics. I'm embedded in there. And I just want to give you guys a quick rundown on Neil. As I mentioned, author, uh, so author, writer, and speaker, he focuses on themes of gratitude, happiness, failure, resilience, and trust. So you guys already know he's in the right place. <laughs> we are in the right place with him here. Um, because these are very, very important uh, topics, especially lately. I've been, you know, you guys already know how I've been feeling about gratitude and happiness, but this idea of trust, such an important topic uh, in general, trust in yourself, trust in other people, how you approach, um, you know, this world. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. He's also the author, as I mentioned, excuse me, of seven books, um, book of awesome, book of holiday, awesome, book of even more awesome, awesome is everywhere, the happiness equation, how to get back up. And you are awesome, which is the latest one. Um, his, uh, he's got a hundred million hit award-winning blog, a thousand awesome things. I want you guys to check that out. We'll, we'll talk to him a little bit about that as well. And, um, the happiness equation was originally written as a 300 page love letter to his unborn son on how to live a happy life. And that actually really, that really hit me hard, uh, when I read that. Um, and then he's got, um, you know, how to get, uh, get back up as a memoir of failure and resilience, uh, released as an audible original. And, uh, so uh, I mean, the man has, has, has done it. His books are New York Times and number one international bestsellers have sold millions of copies across dozens of languages. He also gives over 50 speeches a year at places like TED, South by Southwest and Google. His first TED talk, the three A's of awesome is ranked one of the 10 most inspiring of all time. And my, and his second is called, uh, how do you maximize your tiny short life? Which I thought was, <laughs> was incredible. Uh, and an artistic side project called the world's first TED listen, um, composed, uh, entirely of questions. Uh, he also hosts an Apple best of 2018 podcast called three books where he is on a 15 year long mission to uncover and discuss the thousand most formative books in the world. Uh, and then each of the 333 chapters unpacks the three most formative books of an inspiring individual like Judy Bloom, Chris Anderson of TED, The World's Greatest Uber Driver, or David Sedaris. Um, and the show is recorded live at the, uh, at the guest's preferred location. It's 100% ad sponsor and interruption free. You guys know how I feel that because for the most part, with a little bit of experimentation, uh, other than a little bit of experimentation back in the beginning, we, we don't do that here. 
Um, and then uh, each chapter publishes on the exact minute of every new moon and full moon up to September 1st, 2031. So you guys got to tune into that and stay tuned into that for the next 15 years. Uh, and he shares his most current writing on a biweekly email, um, which he sends to over 30,000 people every Wednesday. Neil, I hope I did you some justice there uh, on the bio, man. Thank you for being on the show. Can I hire you to be my hype man? <laughs> I get asked that actually often. <laughs> but you know, we're we're. It's, I think it's important to celebrate um, everybody that comes on the show. You guys are always doing so many things, right? And it's like we don't always get to 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 stop and enjoy it when we're on, um, constantly on the go. So someone's got to do it for you. I appreciate that, and it's <laughs> great to be here chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the the first question, as you know, is always the same. It's it's a little bit of the background and the context of like, how do we get here? What you know, but before we start talking a little bit more further about um, this idea of how we embody our greatness and our awesome, and you know how we live more intentionally, and you know some of the topics that you know came right out of your book, I thought were were incredible about you know how do you keep your options open after failure and. Um, you know, the, the spotlight effect, all these things I thought were great, but I would love for the audience to get to know you first as to like how you got here with all of the awesome that you're doing. Sure. Well, for me, 10 years ago, my life fell apart in the span of three weeks. I was in a, I was married for two years and I drove home. I worked at Walmart. I drove home from Walmart one night. And my wife was waiting for me on the front porch and she said, and I'm summarizing because it's, it's the start of the podcast, but she said, you know, I'm not in love with you anymore and I, I think we should get a divorce. And I was stunned and I was taken aback and we just bought a house and we were talking about having kids and I was in shock. And unfortunately, I couldn't process that shock because just a few days later, my closest friend took his own life. Uh, my friend Chris sadly committed suicide. And so this was like probably the worst three months of my life. I was I was not eating. I was not sleeping. I was I was a skeleton. Like I was I'd lost 40 pounds. People at work were like, you look great. What's your secret? You know, we, we <laughs> had to do it. We project onto people. Right. Right. And um, I, I was going to like the, the courthouse to file divorce paperwork. I was putting my house up for sale. I'm writing a eulogy for my friend. And as this was all going on, one day I decided to start a blog just to try to cheer myself up. I wasn't eating, wasn't sleeping. Like I said, I was I was I was feeling like a mess. But one day I go on Google, I type in how to start a blog. I click the I'm feeling lucky button that no one ever clicks. And I started up a WordPress blog called 1000 awesomethingscom Honestly, it was a whim. I saw I just picked a random number. I just picked the word awesome and I wrote a really weird dumb post about broccoflower, the strange mutant hybrid child of nature's ugliest vegetables. It was like bro it's like green cauliflower. <laughs> and then I and, and I didn't think anyone would ever read the thing because because no one reads anyone's blog, right? But then over time I started doing this every night. And I I, I said at the beginning I, I would do it for a thousand straight nights. And so, you know, my mom forwarded it to my dad. My traffic doubled one day. Then they sent it around. I got like 10 hits in one day. Then one day I got 100. Then one day I got 1,000. Then one day, no joke, I got 50,000 like in one day. Like it hit the front page of like um, FARC.com. Right. And then from there it was picked up by like Wired Magazine and, you know, Reddit. And things kind of go viral. The first viral post was called Old Dangerous Playground Equipment. So you see this blog took off, got popular, went viral. I won an award for best blog at the – uh, the Webbies, the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, which I know sounds totally fake, but it's like a real thing. No, it's very and real. You know it, but yeah. a lot of people don't, and I didn't when I when when I was going through it. And then um, it turned into a book. So five agents came and approached me, said we got to turn the thing into a book. And that first book that you mentioned in your awesome hype man intro. <laughs> Um, it was called The Book of Awesome. And so that book came out in 2010. And honestly, they printed 6,000 copies of that book uh, total. And it, it should have just been like any book. Pops in, pops out, game over. But that thing then took off. It sold a million copies. It was a number – it was a New York Times, a number one bestseller for like 200 weeks, like four mm. straight years. Mm. And then, honestly, man, I'm still on the momentum from that. Like it was that book way back in 2010 that let me even start to think about, hmm, could I write another book? What would it be about? Would anybody read it? And then, you know, could I accept an invitation to give a speech? What would I say? What What do I have to say? And so really, honestly, a lot of this was thrust upon me, and I've been exploring as I go. I clutched that Walmart job like, like, a, like a safety – Best for eight years, eight years from that day, like to to so from the blog's origin for eight years through five books through 300, 200 speeches, I held on to that Walmart job. And only when I got remarried 
to my wife, Leslie, and she told me she was pregnant on the plane home from our honeymoon. It's a long separate story. <laughs> then only then did I say, oh, man, I got to I got to pick one. I got to either pick the Walmart thing or I got to pick the writing thing. And then I, I quit Walmart. And now for the last couple of years, I've been doing this stuff full time, which means writing books, giving talks about it. And honestly, like doing a lot of wandering. And I say in my book that wandering is really good for you. <laughs> it, <laughs> Going it, untouchable, as I call it. It is. You know, everything about what you just said um, embodies a lot with the listeners and um, my relationship with them as well, too, because I, you know, with the exception of the the corporate job, um, I was you six years, six years ago, um, had like all these beautiful consulting contracts, you know, I mean, great money. I was married, like all these different things. Mine was not three months. Mine was more like mm, six, seven months and then poof, all of it gone. And, uh, you know, you as a man, you take a very hard look at yourself in the mirror when that happens. And it's like, oof, you know, like what now? And and that's when the exploratory exploratory phase really begins um, into your into your truth, into your, you know, your path. And uh, so what I, now is even amazing. It's like, a, what it, now is pretty good. I was I was more like I'm unlovable. I'm ugly. No one wants to be around me. No one wants to date me. I'm, I'm going to die alone. Like I my stuff was actually way more negative than that. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's the, uh, I can't say, I mean, I can't say, I, don't, I mean, I did a, a year though, a year of like, um, for me, it was like a, an, un, an unraveling. Like on one hand, I was learning so many different things, but then I was like feeling guilty and I was crying and like a ball in a corner for like, <laughs> for like a year straight. I mean, it was, you know, but transformation is, is ugly sometimes or messy in the middle, I should say, yeah. um, you know, but I, I, I think it's great what you did. And then, you know, I totally get the, you know, I started speaking online just like you and then boom, all of a sudden you have like these hundreds of thousands of people and you're like, uh, you know, like, all right, I'll just keep having a conversation about like real stuff. Like, let's just, let's just have these real conversations that sometimes are missing. So I'm, I'm so grateful that you did that, that you took that leap. And it also, it shows everybody else, like we all don't know. We can have a vision for ourselves, but the rest has to be made up along the way, and you just have to kind of move in that. and And I think it's uh, it's unbelievable. And now, so you've got this the the newest book out. You are awesome, and I noticed that there was a couple of different, a uh, few different topics um, that were coming out of that book that was on one of your websites, and I thought they were just, oof, they were like these one liners that I knew uh, would would be great for the show. Uh, one of them was that the single word that keeps your options open after failure. Mm-hmm. I wanted you yeah. to talk about that. I will. I will. So, so why did I ever even write this thing on resilience? Like, you know, this book is all about resilience. And I think I'm going to tell you about that word. I think that this is the issue of our time. I think, you know, a guy ran up to me after a speech recently, Matt, and he's like, what's wrong with my son? He, he graduated from high school, like top of his class, like captain of the football team, class valedictorian. He went to Duke University on a full scholarship. He graduated with honors. He got a great job at it big, huge, fancy company. And on his first day of work, he called me that night from his bed crying, saying his boss wrote him a rude email and he didn't think he'd be able to go back to work the next day. Hmm. And when I heard that story, I actually kind of related to it. You know what I mean? I mean, I was like, oh, that's how I feel when I get a nasty email. Oh, that's how I feel when I get stuck in traffic. Or, oh, that's how I feel when I get two likes on my picture on Instagram. You know, I feel like I'm a failure. I feel like everything's over. And I realize it's weird because we live in the best time ever, right? Objectively, we've never lived longer. We've never had more clean drinking water. We've never had higher education. We we live in Awesomeville. Like this is the most abundant. We have more stuff in our houses now or on our cell phones than like emperors had. 50 years ago. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. At the same time, we have spiking anxiety, spiking loneliness, spiking suicide, spiking mental illness, spiking depression. What the heck is going on? Everything's better than ever, and we feel worse than ever. And so I think, to answer your question on the single word, a lot of us go through, whether that's a divorce or whether that's losing a friend or whether that's whatever, we go through these big traumatic like chunk chunks. And when that happens, I say the one word you need to remember to keep your options open is yet, Y-E-T, just mm. the word yet. So people always say, oh, um, you know, I failed biology. Uh, I, I, I'm no good at biology. Or they think, I'm not creative. Or you get a bad blood test from the doctor, you think, I don't take care of myself. Honestly, you're projecting. You are closing yes. the door. Just add the word yet. Just add that one word. Okay, so I'm not creative yet. I don't take care of myself yet you know i don't speak japanese 
yet. Whatever it is, add that one little word. I've actually, so Leslie and I now have tiny little kids, and my three-year-old, he now says at the dinner table, Daddy, I don't like broccoli yet. You know, I've taught him to say that because if I if he says I hate broccoli, which most kids say, and don't get me wrong, he says that's where it came from. He said it sometimes. If he says I hate broccoli, he's now telling himself a story yes. that he will have to retell in a different language. So all I want to tell listeners is just add that one word yet. Just try to add that in. It's like seeing the little sliver of light between the door and the frame right after you hear the latch click. You know. Yeah, it's um, like, can you just see the possibility that things could change in the future? It's such a powerful word. It, it really is. I mean, I can think about meetings that I've been in or situations uh, with some of the stuff that's been happening that's been great. And like in recent years, somebody will say, oh, you know, I think uh, we're going to pass. You know, we're not interested. I'm, and I'm always in my mind. I'm always like, yet. But you will see. You will see the bigger vision. Oh, yes, you will. Like, you know, but that that yet, it keeps... Um, yeah, I think it just it keeps that resilience of like, all right, you don't see it yet. All right, you don't understand it yet. All right, I don't know where this is all going yet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so you're right. It's a very, very powerful word that has significant impact on our entire um, uh, internal awareness and external, you know, presence. We're not, we stop projecting. You're absolutely right. That's what a lot of people do is that they just project based on the story that they put in their head when a single word like that can easily cut it out and, and keep them um, kind of more focused for like, okay, so just not today. Got it. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm still and, and I think part of the reason most of us are catastrophizing, and I'm including myself in that, you know, we catastrophize. We think things are, the world is over when anything bad happens is partly because we live in an era, this era of supremely high abundance. You know, it's because no one's getting shipped off to war. There's no famine going on. No one's going right. through the plague. Like, there's just no gigantic economic collapse. Like, we actually haven't, as a result, got the thick skin that you need to navigate change and challenge and failure. So that's partly what I'm trying to grow in myself as an adult. I wish I grew it as a kid, and I'm trying to grow it in kids and through readers of the book. You know, it's it's true. And that that resilience, you know, my father always taught me, my father demonstrated resilience and he always taught me resilience. Um, and I always tell people um, that, you know, rip the Band-Aid off, you know, just <laughs> resilience is going to be like what's going to test you along the way. You're going to be tested in anything good for your life. You're going to be tested in it. And I remember because uh, I was always an independent uh, like contractor or things like that. And I remember my, my mother, like I used to tell her like, oh, you know, people tell me like, you know, oh, you know, what you do, it's so unstable, you know, and, uh, you know, it, there's instability. And, and, and she was just always laugh at me. And she'd say, what do you think happens when those people lose their quote unquote stable job? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? She's like, see, you've learned how to adapt over so many years. You've learned how to make moves and how to make situations from something really not Mm -hmm. so fun into something better for yourself. Like that type of characteristic doesn't come without like you actually taking risks, putting yourself out there, making moves, understanding what's happening in real time. People who get too comfortable in their quote unquote stable jobs, the moment something happens where they lose it, they go into complete instability and they're under the illusion that there is actual stability there in the first place when really there isn't any stability except for what you can do to yourself internally. This is like, so smart. So was this, sorry, this was your mom? Yeah, so my, my father taught me the resilience. My mother taught me, uh, you know, because we'd have deep discussions like that. Yeah. Yeah, well, this sounds like the smartest advice <laughs> I ever heard because, you know, I went to Harvard Business School and I remember when I was there, somebody said to me, you know what, I got here, Neil. This is a fellow classmate of mine. He said, I got here, Neil, and I expected people to be staying up late in the hallways, like brainstorming a new startup idea or people to think like, I want to try taking this huge risk. And actually, everyone's trying to get a job at Google. <laughs> like, actually, he's like, what's going on? He's like, turns out these people have self-selected as risk uh, averse people yes. by virtue of the nature that they came to Harvard Business School. They're looking for – like if you orient yourself towards getting the next thing and the next thing and the next thing, i got to get an A in this class so I get into this college, so I can get into this school, so I can get into this job. Well, then you're by definition slightly fragile. Yes. And you won't know how to handle yourself if you get tossed off course. And your mom's advice is so smart because she's you know, helping you become anti-fragile, being comfortable with being uncomfortable. Oh man, it's, it's so true. And it has been, you know, I mean, that that was probably about eight years ago that that conversation took place, but it was, it's so true though, in general, I I find that that society has this warped sense of, again, this warped sense of stability. 
And I'm like, the, st- the truest form of stability comes from your, your inner work, from your inner peace, from how you construct yourself from the inside out. Because on any given day, your life can change. That, in fact, it is always changing. That's, <laughs> that's the constant. So, so yeah, go ahead. You, you, you figured this out. Like, you sharp elbowed your way. I don't know how old you are. I'm 40. I'm 40. I'm 40 as well. I was about to say I'm 42, but then I thought it would sound like the number 42 right. instead of 40 <laughs> comma T-O-O. I'm also 40. But for me, I only came to the realization you got from your mom like at an older age. And I was like, oh my gosh, no wonder it was it was like traumatizing for me when I wasn't good at my office job at Procter & Gamble. Like, I, I was not used to navigating those failures. I actually say one of the lessons I, I sort of try to tell people is you got to make a failure budget. It sounds so dumb, but I actually tell people, and I do this myself, I put a certain amount of money on January 1st every year in a special pot that I say, I'm going to spend this money before the end of the year to just try wild and crazy experiments that will probably fail. Whether that's trying a cooking class or going to a far-flung music festival or like I, I have a podcast. Honestly, my podcast is, a, is it comes out of my failure budget because – doesn't make any money. I have no, you know, as you said, has no ads and stuff. And I do this podcast, three books, just so I can experiment with like talking to people I want to talk to and having an excuse to ask them for a conversation. So I think everyone needs to like work on thickening their skin. And there's actually some specific models you can do. This failure budget, of course, is just one of them. Oh man, I I absolutely love what you're saying too. Because see, and 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 I always say we're we're more than one thing. And this path of discovery and unraveling layers, um, sometimes to get to different things that are really, really good for you, you have to do like what you're doing with this failure budget. You're like, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try that. Those things, some of them, some of them stay with you and tack on to the thing that you're already building and bring in new um, dimensions to your work. Other things, you know, are they were just great experiences. But either way, they all are shaping you. And, you know, that ability to make movement and creativity in your life just constantly yields more abundance or yields more, just more into your world. And, and like, even like, you know, you were saying like this podcast, right? So you, know, you, may, do it, you, you may do it and there's no money to be made. Um, you know, I don't rely on the podcast for, for income, but the relationships that have come from this thing are incredible. I mean, <laughs> I'm talking like, you know, Pick a country, pick a person, pick an industry, you know. And, Plus, you know, just like subtract all that stuff you can count. What can't you count? What can't? What are you learning? Oh, do you man. know what I mean? Like, the, the, forget. Imagine everyone on your podcast never talked to you again, and you, you know, you never had any future business deals that were unrelated. You'd still have changed your own brain, and that's worth like infinite amounts. Absolutely, absolutely. That's exactly it. And it, the the conversations that can happen from from doing things like this as well too. Uh, I always tell people, it's like um, if we were to normally go out for coffee and have this amazing conversation, but nobody else in the world knew about it. Well, we're going to take that same elevated conversation and put it on and record it and let everybody else hear it, <laughs> basically, you know, but it's it, it, I, I think it's uh, it's incredible, you know, in, in terms of your approach. And, and, you know, there was another thing that you had brought up uh, on that I was reading about the the spotlight effect. Yeah. Um, and I thought that that was uh, a very, uh, first of all, I, uh, I already know, I already think I know where you're going to go with this and I could easily go on a tear, but it's, it's, the, it's your show here right now. So, no, 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 you I know, wanna, but, I, I'm but very happy for you to go on a tear. I, I, I like listening to you. You've got a great voice. Thank you. Um, oh, but I want to hear, me, yeah, I want to hear what you have to say about the spotlight effect yeah. and like fooling your brain to thinking poorly of yourself. I mean, here's the thing. We are all super egotistical. Let's just start with that. Like all of us think that when we suck at something, everyone knows it, everyone's watching, everyone's looking at us, and everyone can see it. So when I sucked at my first job, I hinted at that earlier. So just a quick summary. You know, I got like straight A's in high school. I went to like the number one. I'm I'm from outside of Toronto, Canada. I went to the top business school in Canada, which at the time I went there was Queen's University. I went to this this program called Queen's Commerce. At the time, again, it was the the hardest program to get into. You had to have like a super high mark. And I did really well and I got dean's list and I got the top marketing job. You could, So they published this marketing salary report and it was 2002 when I graduated. So it was like everyone in the marketing department is, is making between $24,000 and $51,000. They published that report. And I looked at my salary at Procter & Gamble and I was like, hey, I'm, I'm 51000 Like I'm the top one in the whole class. And so I was like, wow, like I got the best job out of the best program in the best school. And guess what happened, Matt? 
I sucked at it. I sucked <laughs> at it like from day one. Like they they asked me to do stuff. I, I thought it was a PowerPoint job. It turned out to be an Excel job. I was I suck at math. I suck at spreadsheets and stuff. You know, I, I couldn't figure it out. I was I was starting to work late. I'm starting to work weekends. I'm grinding my teeth. I can't I don't know my numbers and meetings. I'm getting chewed out. I'm put on a performance improvement plan, which is like a little piece of paper that basically says, Hey, we would like to fire you, but we don't have enough of a paper trail. <laughs> Let's build one together, you know? So I'm like having to write down all the stuff I suck at now on a daily basis. Like, I'm like, I'm about to get fired. And then eventually I just can't handle the fact that like, I, I can't emotionally handle the fact that I'm going to get fired because it did not fit into my identity as someone who was successful. And never mind that I got this like fancy job. And I was like, I'm like, if I, if I lose this job, I've first of all lost money. Second of all, I've lost the place I think I'm supposed to meet my future wife. Like I, you know, I was like 21 years old. I'm like, I'm going to meet someone here. They're all young professionals. I'm like, this is it. Like I, I won't meet someone and I can't work an office job or a marketing job. Cause I've proven that I've sucked at those things. And marketing was my best class in college. So if I can't, if it's not marketing, like it certainly isn't going to be like finance or anything else. Cause I wasn't even good at that stuff. So if I can't get working in any office, I'm going to be like selling like refurbished VCRs at a trade show in Cleveland, like trying to hit on people at the bar with my hair slicked back, like, you know, masturbating all alone to porn in, in the hotel room <laughs> with surrounded by like a bunch of metal trays of old club sandwiches. Like I was like picturing this like terrible worst nightmare, you know, and that is the spotlight effect. That is what it is. The spotlight effect is a term that was developed in the year 2000 from this uh, journal called Current Directions in Psychological Science. These researchers found that they asked students to estimate their own abilities in the eyes of others on their appearance, their athletic accomplishment, how well they played a video game. They rated themselves much harder than everybody else. They assumed that people were rating them harder than them. Mm. When actually, no one really cared about anybody else. That's the thing. So – you know, we think everybody's looking at us and watching us and evaluating us and thinking about us, but actually everyone's just checking their cell phone. You know, it's like when you go to the gym, you ever like look at people, they're like, oh, I don't really want to go to the gym because, you know, people will be looking at me and I can't lift that much weights. And, you know, maybe I'll wear like a sweatshirt and sweatpants because I don't want anyone to see like my spindly little arms and legs. <laughs> but actually, if you look at everybody else in the gym, they're all just looking at themselves in the mirror. It's true. You know what I mean? No one actually even notices anybody else. They're super, everyone's super focused on themselves, but we think because we're so focused on ourselves, everyone else is too. And that's the logical error. Therefore, what we need to do is shift the spotlight, separate ourselves from what's happening and learn how to see all the other things that could be part of it. Meaning, what do I mean by that? Okay. Say you really want to go to Yale and you don't get in. You think, I suck. I can't get an idea. What? You don't know anything about that. It could be they don't have enough beds. They know better than you that you might not fit in. They, there might be something on your background that says shows that you might be better at a smaller school or whatever. You don't know. You're projecting. So we need to change the game from moving that object of pain in our heads to beside us, not inside us. It's, okay? Yeah. There's, no, 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 there's, one, there's one less study I want to just mention here. Uh, it comes from Utrecht University over in the Netherlands, um, and they did this amazing study on anorexics, and they asked people to walk through a doorway, just normal doorway, and they asked them a mindless question as they were walking through they had to pay attention to. The anorexics shifted their bodies so that they would sh fit through the doorways when, A, everybody would fit through the doorway, and B, the anorexics were, if anything, already skinnier. Now, I'm not saying you have anorexia. What I'm saying is your opinion of yourself could be projecting outwards in potentially totally nonsensical ways. And we all have things like this. We all have things that we're doing in our behavior and our actions that make no sense, but they're us trying to, you know, it's like combing over a bald spot, putting putting lifts in your <laughs> shoes if you think you're short. You know, like you, you wear clothes that flatter your appearance. We all do this. We all do this, all of us. So shifting the spotlight is about removing the fact that you're not the center of the whole world. Let it go and try not to see yourself as a failure when you fail, just like you try not to see yourself as like the ultimate winner when you win. Just be a little less oriented towards yourself. Oh, amen. Amen. You know, and, it, and it's and it's interesting because like when you when you shift that spotlight and you just realize like, look, I'm just a human being having a human experience, just experimenting. And, you know, and I, I tell people, I'm like, you want to be really, really brave. I was like, go on to social media and just show people from start to finish. Like, hey, like, um, so I'm venturing to art a little bit. I want to, like, show you guys, like, behind the scenes as I'm doing it. I'm like, not really sure where it's going to go. 
but I'm having fun doing it. That actually like helps other people realize if if anything your inabilities or your you know lack of knowledge in a certain area when you open it up transparently like that starts a new type of conversation for people to go, "Huh, I admire that. He has absolutely no clue what he's doing and yet he's still trying it and he's doing it in front of us to see where it goes. I think I'm going to try something too." Exactly. People give you so many points for being transparent about your process. There's a great book on this called Show Your Work by mm. Austin Kleon. And he shows, you know, it's like uh, Beyonce, I think it's Beyonce or Alicia Keys. I think it might be Alicia Keys who did like the famous cover of her her uh, album with like no makeup on. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like it's like um, Ryan Holiday who releases most his latest book on stoicism. He sh- shows like his note card process for how he files all his research and how he indexes all his quotes. It's like when we can see how you make the sausage, we respect the pro- we respect the sausage you make a little bit more. Oh man, it and it's and it's so true. And it also it, it again it, kind of the basis of this show. It humanizes things. People go like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, wow, like they're not perfect. Like no, what would ever make you think that we're perfect? <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> You know, I was I was featured on a different podcast yesterday, and uh, we were talking about comfort zones. And I said I'm uncomfortable every day, <laughs> you know, like in a, in a healthy way, like because you know if you're always pushing your boundaries, you're always trying to do something new. Um, you know, that's definitely staying out of your comfort zone. You know, that none of us are in these comfort zones. It's just that sometimes um, the world uh, highlights it online or however it gets highlighted and then depending on like what you brought up about you know the your own spotlight effect if you're already being hard on yourself plus on top of that you're seeing all this other stuff online that looks perfect to you and you're weighing yourself against that oh man like it's it's a recipe for major depression and as you brought up you know earlier at the top of the hour about like all you know we're living one of the greatest times but at the same time why is depression so high why is uh you know is anxiety and and suicide and all these things at the highest rate um, you know, so you're absolutely right. It's, it's shifting that spotlight is, is everything. And, and actually just also embracing the process. Like it's called the process for a reason. None of us were great marketers at the beginning. I'm like, I'm on year like 15 and I'm still learning like constantly <laughs> new stuff. Well, you and I both say this, we espouse it, we talk about it, but that like, how do we square that? I'm talking to both of us here. How do we square that with the idea that based on social media, in order to grow your follower count, your view count on YouTube, whatever. If you look at all the successful channels, the ones that have tons of hits and views and followers, whatever, they're showing a little bit more skin. They look a little bit prettier. They have lots more bikini photos or bathing suit photos. It's like actually based on the world of social media, the one that I look at, it's like those algorithms are are very much rewarding people who aren't showing their most authentic vulnerable self, but actually are trying to present an object of beauty to the world that isn't true, but garners more hits and likes. I, you know what? I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna play devil's advocate here a little bit on that. I, first of all, I agree with the, the, um, there's definitely, you know, anything that's visually enticing gets a lot of hits, but they, what they usually lack is a lot of real engagement. And what, um, I have noticed now I'm, I'm fortunate because I have a very large following on Instagram on both of them. But, um, but, um, what I have noticed is that, if you're capable, I'm just now getting even way more vulnerable than I ever had before. Um, but I've noticed that people who are very vulnerable on social media, whew, they, their stuff goes through the roof because it's like, yes, that person, I can relate to that. And they like, and they get the engagement on top of that. And that engagement really like triples down, you know, all that, all that other stuff. Plus, you know, we live in this world of bots and, and that that's the unfortunate part is the people also gaming the system. So making their profiles really, really big and then other people taking that really serious and you're like, wow, you're you're taking what somebody else has, which by the way is fabricated first visually and then second um, from what appears to be a large following and you're justifying your worth on that. And I, I, I feel bad when people do that because nobody... Well, I hate... I, I, I agree with you and I also... I don't trust any of these companies at all. <laughs> I mean, by definition, a company is, by definition, a profit-seeking enterprise. And the way you maximize profit when you have no cost to join, meaning there's no membership fee, right? You don't, but you don't gotta pay anything to be on Facebook or on Instagram or or Twitter, right? You, it's not like Costco where you pay like your 50 bucks a year. You got, you pay nothing to get in. Well, the only way that they can make more money is by serving you more ads. And the only way they can serve you more ads is if you stay on there longer. And the only way they can stay on there longer is if it never stops scrolling, if there's another hashtag to click, if, if the little one or the little heart flashes up so you click it. The whole thing is meant to be like brain glue to get you sucked into a system where you are endlessly monetized and you are essentially the mark. 
And so I don't, for me, yes, I'm on all the social media stuff. Okay. However, what I do is I've deleted, I personally have deleted all the apps from my phone. So I have no apps on my phone, which means I have to like open my laptop and log in. And I don't have many of my passwords saved because I'm always an incognito. I probably sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but this way I just have an extra barrier. So it makes me log in a lot less. And I have an addictive personality. So if I didn't do that, then I would be clicking that thing all the time. Similarly with my podcast uh, on three books, I don't have access to my own Libsyn account. So Libsyn is the, the podcast yep. software that I use to like mm-hmm. all my stats and stuff. I say to my assistant, never give me the password to that. I never <laughs> want it ever. Okay. Like once in a month, I might ask you how, how we're doing, but like, I don't want to know because if I fall into the trap of vet, measure myself based on the extrinsic motivators, then I will lose sight. We know this from research. I will lose sight of the intrinsic motivators, which is why I'm doing something in the first place. And again, I say, we know this from research. It's a really famous study. And I mentioned this in you are awesome. Um, there's a really famous study where they asked 12-year-old girls to teach like six-year-old girls piano. And the one group of girls, they said, you're going to get the rewards of a nice thank you. The other group of girls, they said, you're going to get uh, a ticket to go see the movies for free. Well, guess what? After half an hour, which is the set time they had for it, the girls who were getting the, the movie ticket, the extrinsic motivator, the external motivator, they were uh, – crueler they were meaner they were sharper they were more frustrated and of course they left at half an hour on the dot the ones that were given the intrinsic motivator just the sign of like a nice thank you they stayed longer they were more generous with their time with their energy and with Mm -hmm. their emotions and those younger girls learned better the point of the research is that extrinsic motivators can trick or fool or cover our own intrinsic motivation. We have to be very careful. We don't do things for the wrong reasons. Oh, so, so true. And, you know, and by the way, I also like that you um, put those extra barriers. Um, you know, I, one of the things I've, I gave at a talk was that um, I said that I use uh, social media to converse and create and document, you know, create conversation with an audience. And then I, that's it. Everything else I, I put, I mute out people, I mute out stories, I mute out um, as many people as I can. Like even people like some people I'm like, oh, it's cool. Like outside the circle, um, just I put up these extra barriers so I can stay in my lane of creativity and just focus. Um, being that I'm like, well, I want to use the technology, but I don't want to succumb to all of the extra, extra things that can um, distract you. And so I think that no matter what we do, we have to put some kind of barriers that allow us that that. Um, I almost want to call it that pleasure, that like that peace, if well, you will, you know. Well, this is the other thing is that I, like everybody, fall into internet rabbit holes, right? Where <laughs> I look up and it's like 10.30 p.m. And I was like, wow, eight, at 8 o'clock, I just wanted to see who was like not playing on my fantasy football team. And I suddenly am like two and a half hours later, I like got sucked into the trap of checking a million things. The problem is that we tend to blame ourselves after that. So I go to bed cranky mm. and in a bad mood thinking, damn, I know I screwed up my, I'm not going to go sleep properly. I'm, I'm going to, my, 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 you know, I'm not going to feel good in the morning for my kids. But actually, biologically, physiologically, we are not to blame. The truth of the matter is our brains are used to stopping mechanisms. Look, for 200,000 years of evolution, our, we looked in the forest for berries till we found enough and then we stopped. True. The, when I was a kid, you can relate. You're the same age as me. You know, the way you read the news was you, you opened a newspaper, you flipped to the end, and then you were done. It wasn't a 24-7 around-the-clock news cycle with things on every channel and every TV in the corner of the elevator feeding us endless, we- feeding us endless weather forecasts so that we get hooked and sucked into the ads. Similarly, in Instagram and Twitter and stuff, they never stopped scrolling. There's actually been Tristan, Tristan Harris, uh, Center for Humane and Technology, was just testifying in front of the Capitol saying that he thinks he's a former he's a formal former chief ethicist for Google. He thinks that big tech companies should be outlawed on auto scrolling because auto scrolling is something that our brains physiologically don't know what to do with. Mm. We don't know how to stop. We don't. We you can't. Have you ever been to an all you can eat buffet and and ate too much food? Oh yeah, of course. Same <laughs> thing, right? Same thing. It's the exact same thing. You're like, I don't know how to stop. I don't know how to stop. I used to read. Remember how I used to watch Seinfeld? It was like Thursday nights at nine. Right. And when it was over, it was like, we'll see you next week or maybe after the summer. Now, if you go on Netflix or YouTube, it it purposefully auto plays the next thing because it's more work and it's difficult work to stop the thing. 
And it's tracking everything that you're doing so it can keep recommending more. <laughs> you know? Well, exactly. The YouTube algorithm is like controlling all of us. You know? Well, so let me ask you this then, because this this is a great segue into, you know, creating what you would call an untouchable day. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that actually means a lot to me. Um, I worked on, I so I audit my weeks uh, every Sunday. And I look at like what, you know, how um, I set up my day intentionally uh, for the day from uh, anywhere from 5 a.m. till I go to sleep at about 9.30 and at night. And, um, you know, and I just keep tweaking it as I learn new new techniques, things that just kind of um, create more flow for me. Um, but it takes time. It takes a lot of time. I think a lot of people can get very... Um, uh, they get uh, they get a little hard on themselves. Um, I always tell people it's a process. I'm still constantly like tweaking it and molding it and shaping it to you know my kind of day. So I'm curious to know um, you know your your whole background on you know your take on creating an untouchable day. Sure. Okay. So I worked at Walmart for ten years, right? I mentioned that, and then when I when I came time to quitting. I was really stressed about it because I was on the up and up there. I could get, I could get, I was director of leadership development. That was my last job. So I'm working for like the CEO and I'm, I'm thinking, I don't want to quit, but I ended up talking to an old mentor of mine. He's like, ask yourself two questions. Number one is called the deathbed question. And number two is called the plan B question. The deathbed question is what would you regret not doing? on your deathbed it'll be working at walmart going up or being trying the writer thing i think oh the writer thing like i i better i better do that otherwise i'll always regret not doing it okay the next question is the plan b test what will you do if it fails okay so i had to take a deep look into myself and say do i have the confidence to think that if this whole thing fails i could brush up the resume go on linkedin and start knocking on doors again and i thought okay i can try that is it something i can live with your plan b so i quit Walmart, I start writing full time. Here's the problem. It's related to all the stuff we just talked about. I I suddenly had way more time to write, Mm. but I noticed that I wasn't getting anything done. And it was really embarrassing, to be honest with you. People would be like, so Neil, now that you quit your job, how's the new book? And I was like, oh, now that I quit my job terribly like i can, I, I, I don't <laughs> so i didn't even true. know what i was doing but my my email inbox was like 100 emails a day in the sent items you know what i mean like i was like i wasn't even doing anything nothing big so i took a drastic step i started making one day a week every week untouchable and i even write it like that untouchable in my iphone calendar iCal and i make it all caps and what's on the untouchable day nothing are there any meetings no do i see anybody no. Do I have internet access? No. Do I have my cell phone with me? No. I literally have nothing around me. Um, and if I do have my laptop, then it's off of the internet. So it's like a, it's like kind of like a, you know, not a dumb device, but it's right. not connected to anything. Guess what happened? My writing output went up 10x. I went from writing 500 words a day to 5,000 words a day. I had nothing else I could do. I had nothing to distract me. I had nothing to pull my attention away down the internet rabbit holes. So I now schedule one untouchable day every single week. And actually, sometimes I even try to get two in. It's really important to me because my podcasts, my books, my all that stuff, all the good stuff I've been doing comes from those untouchable days. People always say to me, oh, that's easy for you. Say, you're a writer. I'm like, no, no, I think I'm a writer because I do this, not I do this because I'm a writer. You know, it's 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 carving out time so that you can do your most important, complex and deep work. Otherwise, we're surface skimming on the shallows forever. And that creates anxiety because you you don't feel like you got anything done. So, like, look, the book's all about resilience. And I think one of the biggest ways we can build resilience now is by what I call untethering ourselves from the machine. We all have NDD, nature deficit disorder, getting back (laughs) to a lot of walking getting through the forest. Do you know trees release a gas? I don't even know this. It's called phyton- phytoncides, P-H-Y-T-O-N-C-I-D-E-S. When you breathe in the chemicals that trees naturally release, your cortisol level goes down. That's a stress hormone. Mm-hmm. So no wonder you feel good in nature. And if you're untethered, if you're like not online, then nothing bothers you. For a while, everyone thinks, oh, well, what if there's an emergency? Well, there isn't really emergencies. That's why they're called emergencies. Like you might have one a year. So all I do is tell my wife where I'm going to be. Do you know what I'm saying? Like I'll be at this coffee shop if you need me or I'll like be walking down around here. That way it's like if she really needs me, she could come find me. But if I check in, which I used to do at lunchtime, it just ruins the rest of my day. So I now have to be unplugged like all day. You know, I, I absolutely love uh, what you're saying here. Um, I, I typically try to do it on Saturdays. 
Um, but like I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to, I'm going to define it out even more using, using your, you know, untouchable strategy, if you will. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It's that, um, I always tell people, cause I'm learning, I've learned this and I'm constantly learning this. We need to slow down to speed things up in our life. Mm-hmm. And it's because we are so heavily distracted by so many different things that when we when we remove those distractions, when we untether and we just kind of, you know, A, if we just spend that that good quality time with ourselves for like one full day, your productivity goes up through the roof. And B, once you do move, remove those distractions, you get very, you know, more in alignment and focused um, on the one or two areas that you're working on the most because you have that untethered day and that, you know, that, that untouchable day, um, you're, you're able to just do more with it. You're, you're more in your alignment and your, and your vibe and your frequency. And I just, I, I find it really interesting that, you know, we, um, you're right. Like it's, it's funny how all of a sudden when we have all this free time, why is it now more than ever we're being distracted? But when we had less free time, we were like, so scheduled it in to make it happen, you know? And and so I found that, you know, it's just a very interesting take that, you know, my wife always says, if you want to get something done, ask a busy person to do it. Yep. (laughs) It's so true. You know, with that, with, with that freedom of, uh, of independence comes responsibility. And I think that's great that you do the, the untouchable day. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's just highly needed. And, and I think it also allows people to kind of, um, once you remove the distractions, you can think clear, much clearer. Mm-hmm. Right? And I know the show's for makers and it's for creators and stuff like that, but a lot of people that are in office jobs say to me, oh, I can't do that. But actually, you can still create an untouchable lunch. Like, you don't kind of sure. go out for lunch with all your coworkers. You don't kind of take your cell phone. You don't have to stay at your desk. Just take out for an hour. I used to go at Walmart and, like, drive to the park and honestly have a, have a nap in a park. And I'd come back energized for the afternoon. So true. By the way, we do have a lot of office workers that also listen to our show. <laughs> so I think that's a perfect. Uh, I'm just sh- saying, like, try yeah. a small step if you're in an office job. And Absolutely. then when you have an untouchable lunch and it works out great, make it 1130 to one, like make it 11 to one. Then turn. I did a study with a productivity author. Here's a good insight for cubicle workers. And I, and I, I put myself in that camp for 10 years. I, the study I did shows that the two best hours of the day to check email, because email, of course, is the ultimate distraction, are nine to 10 in the morning and 4 to 5 p.m. What happens if you check email for those two hours a day? Number one, you give everybody the perception that you're always on, okay, because they still get a response to their crazy late-night emails or middle-of-the-day emails, fine. But you create for yourself a six-hour email-free window in the middle of the day, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., where you actually close Outlook or close Gmail, whatever it is you use, and you just untether yourself for a big chunk in the middle of the day. And it can be very productive in an office, and believe me, no one will complain because you're still doing two full hours of email a day. So true. You know, so it's still you're still definitely giving your all to this crazy frenetic uh, communication thing that we're all using. But you create an email free window that can kind of live the day, untouchable day. Whether you are a cubicle uh, worker or a, a creator, an entrepreneur, I literally in my the footer of my email it says uh, after my name it says in order to be as present as possible and manage all the day has to offer. I started intentionally responding to emails at 8.30 a.m., 12.30 p.m., and 4.30 p.m. If you have an emergency, you probably have my phone number and can reach me there. I appreciate you and with gratitude. <laughs> so, yeah, that's great. I would just say take off the 12.30. I agree. Actually, no, the fact that you just said that, the fact that you just said that, like, has me thinking about that. I'm like, I think I need to remove that uh, because do I really need it three times a day? Not really. In fact, no. like, why would I need to do that during, like, a, a good time for me that I'm usually having lunch or, you know, going for a walk? I don't. So... It's done. It's out because of you. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> I'll let you know how that and the untouchable day goes. I would even challenge you to say that you're really checking email at 1230 because you get high off the dopamine hit it gives you. Absolutely. And I, I'm only saying this as somebody who, like you, I'm like, getting a bunch of emails is good. It, you, it gives you a little hit of dopamine. Absolutely. But actually what we should be doing is leaning into our serotonin and our oxytocin. And those come from love, connection, hugging, kissing real meaningful touch and connection with people we are we hold dear in our hearts that's where we get the good hormone that's where we get the good um neurochemicals yeah absolutely you're right you're absolutely right because it you know that that dopamine hit is like ah you know and then also i've gotten something done because this other this other task that i'm working on that um that does need to get done that i that i'm actually wanting to get done but you know if i hit a wall it's like we go and distract ourselves with something like an email or a social media post or something like that um and get that quick hit and 
you know, <laughs> that just totally messes with it. Uh, Neil, what do you have coming up? Like what's, what's, what's going on that, um, you know, we can, we can be looking forward to. Sure. Well, uh, you are awesome. How to navigate change, wrestle with failure and live an intentional life drops everywhere. November 5th, I'm going on book tour. So if you happen to be living in Toronto, uh, New York, Chicago, Vancouver, Calgary, I'm doing like live events in all those cities throughout November and December. And uh, everything else is just neil.blog, N-E-I-L dot B-L-O-G. It's got all my latest writing. Everything's for free. I don't have ads on anything. Uh, my podcast, my blog, my website, my Twitter, nothing. I just don't do ads. I just like try to put good stuff out into the world. And then once every four years, I ask people to buy a book. Like that's my whole thing. Boom. <laughs> yeah, that's a different jab, jab, jab hook. That's like a jab <laughs> for like four years. And it's like, hey, by the way, if you liked everything I've done the last four years, please buy another book. You know, I, I appreciate that a lot. And and um, so besides Neil.blog, uh, any other place they can reach out to you or find you, follow you, any of that stuff? I, I know we're, you know. No big deal yeah, about we, the whole social We part. mentioned the podcast a couple times, but right. Three Books is the name of the podcast. I'm, I'm trying to uncover the world's thousand most formative books, interviewing people like Judy Bloom, Malcolm Gladwell, David Sedaris. I'm asking people, tell me the three books that changed your life. So if you're into podcasts, which of course you are because you're listening to one, um, my podcast is called Three Books. Awesome. Awesome. That's good stuff. And, and by the way, this is a journey-driven podcast, so I, I tell this to every guest. Uh, as you probably know, you're welcome back on anytime. We can go through a whole other series of topics and things that you know uh, we could probably geek out on. Um, and uh, you know, six months to a year from now, or even sooner, um, life is so different, so fast for all of us. So you know, constantly embodying the journey and having you on is is a part of this. Is uh, is what's going to keep this podcast going until um, the end of time, <laughs> basically. So I really appreciate having you on, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure, Matt. And I love, I love, I love the work you're putting out into the world. Thank you, sir. Likewise, likewise. Hang back for one second. I'll, uh, we'll, we'll connect here offline. Uh, everybody that's listening, uh, uh, best-selling author, seven books. Check it out. He's got the newest one. You are awesome. Coming out uh, November fifth. You said right. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, make sure you guys check that out. Uh, and any of his other uh, books, Neil.blog, uh, you know, and if you look him up online, if you want to Google him, you'll find everything else. Neil Pasricha, P-A-S-R-I-C-H-A, uh, really awesome human being, writing about what it really means to be awesome and letting go of all the things that, you know, that get in our way of of really embodying that. You guys, like, we're all human beings and you were all here put for a very individual reason. Your soul has its work here. It's meant to be a good life. Uh, Neil embodies that. I constantly preach that and constantly work on that. Um, I want you guys to constantly thinking about that. You know, what kind of life do you really want for yourself? And then just taking those necessary steps on a daily basis. You don't have to have it all figured out. None of us do. We're constantly trying to ourselves, but it's a lot more fun when you're actually working towards that more intentional life. I uh, appreciate each and every one of you guys. You guys have been just, uh, just amazing uh, uh, with the podcast and its growth lately. It's just going through the roof. Um, it wouldn't be possible without all of you and constantly referring and reviewing and recommending it. So thank you for that. Uh, for the Hustle Sold Separately and myself, Matt Gottesman, we are out.